And as you are, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For junior church, we're just letting the children that are K through 3rd go out this morning. Okay, so the, just those that are kindergarten through 3rd grade uh, can be dismissed. This morning we're going to uh, deal with our final discussion of the topic of love from 1 Corinthians 13, delving into a passage that can be somewhat complicated. My desire is to not get into the controversial aspects of this text, but really to deal with what I believe is the heart of the text, and that is the profound importance of love in our lives. The title of my discussion this morning is, The Greatest of These is Love. Many other things are listed in this text. But the greatest thing, according to the Apostle Paul, and I believe as is echoed throughout the rest of Scripture, the greatest is, in fact, love. As we've gone through chapter 13, we've made three basic observations. The third one we will make this morning. The first is this. Love is profoundly important. Love is profoundly important. So strong, verses 1 through 3, say that, all spiritual service, and all personal sacrifice, apart from love as a covering, it becomes meaningless. It has no value. It doesn't have a lasting impact or an ability to change individuals or the lives that are served. Love is important because it is the context in which gifts must function. End of chapter 12, or end of chapter 12, End of verse 31, Paul says this. And now I will show you the most excellent way. And the most excellent way that we can serve each other and love each other and care for each other is in the context of loving relationships and service. In verses 4 through 5, Paul spent a lot of time in very simple statements talking about the power of love. Its capacity to affect and bring change in individuals and group life. It is exceedingly powerful. It will positively affect relationships when you pursue it by the disciplines of patience, kindness, humility, service, gentleness, and then that difficult category that we spent a few weeks on, the category of forgiveness. And the truth, folks, is only biblical love, Christ-like, Christ-motivated, cross-driven love will enable us to have a positive effect in each other's lives over the long haul. And we can make decisions on a daily basis that, that impact us to some degree, but only love is going to bring about lasting, measurable impact and change. I think it's just so important that as we go through this, we realize this love, which is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others, is the basic definition that we've been working on. Love is the self-sacrifice that is given for the benefit of others. That will require a fullness of the Spirit of God. But when it is present, it will produce some of the loveliest virtues that will affect us and change us for the rest of our lives. This morning, I want to look at the topic of the prominence of love, or the, I'm sorry, the permanence of love. I want you to notice two statements in this text. The beginning of verse 8, Paul says, love never fails. When you come down to verse 13, here's what he says. And now these three remain, faith, hope, 
and love. But the greatest of these is love. And I believe Paul's argument that love is the greatest is found in the fact that love is permanent. See, there are many things that we experience in this life that we will not experience in heaven. The one thing that we will experience in heaven forever is the love of God that we receive and that we give and share in with each other in a context of absolute perfection where there is no frustration, there is no injury, there is no wound, there is no hurt. Love will be the dominant theme of heaven. This morning, I want us to be challenged to do this. I want us to be challenged this morning to pursue love. To pursue love. To make it our goal and our aim in the context of all of our relationships as driven forward by the work of the Spirit of God. And the reason that I think we should pursue love is this. When you pursue love, you will find that love changes you. Love will change you. I want to list for you this morning three ways that I believe this text emphasizes that love will change your life. You get a clear definition of it. It is the self-sacrifice of what you have for the growth and benefit of others, for the encouragement of others. Okay, It is a desire to have a positive impact in the life of those around you. When you pursue it, here's the effect that it will have on your life. Look at verse 6. The apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Okay, love does not delight in evil, but instead it rejoices. It finds its greatest pleasure in truth. First thought then is this, the pursuit of love will purify your heart. Okay, the pursuit of love will purify your heart. How does it do it? And and notice there's just two contrasting statements. One is this. It refuses to take pleasure in that which is evil. Now, think about the world that you live in. Every time I go to the grocery store or Walmart, I am confronted, and you might even want to use the word assaulted, by a celebration of evil. Do you know the area in the store that I'm talking about? What area in the store am I talking about? At the checkout, right? What's there? Glaring in front of you are tabloids. You know, they call them, you know, gossip columns, all those sorts of things. What, what are they doing? They are celebrations in evil. The goal of those businesses, those publications, is to find the most smut that one can find and then revel in it. And here's what Paul says, love does not find any pleasure in evil. What does it do? It rejoices in the truth. It doesn't want to magnify the faults of others. And one of the most pernicious ways in which that happens in our lives is the bad news about others that travels like wildfire. The Bible uses the word gossip to describe it. It it is a Paul says love doesn't rejoice in evil. Love instead rejoices in what is true. Folks, instead of magnifying the faults of others, instead of rejoicing in sin, love rejoices in the truth. And here's the verse that came to my mind as I was going through this. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
You know what love rejoices in? Love rejoices in the antidote to wickedness. Love rejoices in that which sets us free from the consequences of sin. It doesn't rejoice in sin. It wants to celebrate that which brings freedom from the effects and consequences of sin. Now, as I say that, it's not to say that love does not, that love is unaware of sin. Okay? It's not that it ignores sin when it's present. It seeks to deal with sin when it is present. But it deals with sin from a gospel-based perspective. Its desire is not to throw someone down the stairs so as to destroy their life. Its desire is to bring that person back, to win them back into a positive relationship with God and others. It doesn't rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in letting sinners know that for them there is a Savior who took the full consequence for their sin. Why is that important? That love rejoices in the truth. Because the truth about the cross of Christ affects and alters individuals' eternal destiny. Nothing else does. So the Apostle Paul can say something like this in Galatians 6 and verse 14. He can say, God forbid that I should glory, rejoice in anything like I glory in the cross of Christ. What is Paul? Paul is gospel-centered. He rejoices in the cross work of Christ. And when evil is present, he wants to shine the light of forgiveness to the blood of Christ in every circumstance. He doesn't want to take evil and exalt it. He wants to confront it. And you'll find it throughout the text. Okay, the implications here are not that love never addresses evil. It does, but it always addresses it in a way that seeks to remove the effect and consequence of it through exalting the blood of Christ. Love does not rejoice in evil. It rejoices in the truth. And when you rejoice in the truth, it will have a purifying effect in your life. Ask yourself the question this morning, what do you rejoice in? What do you find satisfaction in? What entertains you? Love will have a purifying effect in answer to that question. It will provide a filter for what you read, for what you view, for the discussions that you have on the phone with friends, for what you share in emails. Love will tailor your life. It will purify your motives, your thoughts, the things that you say. Because as you speak, you'll be asking this question, how can I best help this individual who is in the midst of a struggle? How can I best help this individual who is struggling in their marriage? How can I best help this person who has somehow inadvertently wounded me? How can I best assist and help them. That's what love's going to ask. It's not going to seek to spread the wrong. It's going to seek to cover the wrong and to get it right before God. So pursue love because when you pursue it, it will have the effect of purifying your life. A loving Christian always stands on the side of the gospel and speaks it to those who need to hear it. It rejoices in the change that God brings in the life of others. That effect of the truth of the cross of Christ, when it impacts a life and produces lasting change, love will stand back and say, praise God for that effect. Okay, it rejoices in the effect of truth. Verse 7. Second effect of love when we pursue it. And this is a fascinating passage. It says, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always 
perseveres. Now, I think I could argue from those four words that they, the implication or emphasis of them is being positive. Is it, can, can we say that fairly? It always does these things. And there is this always used four times, which is an indication of it, it, it's, it's a rhetorical device to put an emphasis on these things. Okay, love is always seeking to move from bad things to good things. It's always trying to move from a negative direction to a positive direction. Because that's the effect of love on an individual's life. So, the second thought, if I pursue love, if I make it my constant desire, it will make me positive, or it will fill me with hope. It's an antidote to the negativity that is present in the world we live in. I don't know if you ever realized this, but when you open up a web page like CNN or like the Drudge Report, whatever is your, your page of choice, Fox News, whatever it is, do you ever notice that when you open them, that the vast majority of the information being shared is what? It's negative. Very seldom do I go away from looking at a news page on my computer at the office saying, you know what, I am so deeply encouraged. Okay, why? I live in a world that rejoices in things that are negative. It's what tends to make news, unfortunately. It's what we tend to share. This text tells us that love will transform you and it will give you a positive outlook on life. It will kill pessimism in your life. Why? Okay, and I think the, the two words in the middle of verse 7, always trust and always hopes, are the Godward perspective here. And I believe the other two words that are used at the beginning of the end are the kind of uh, horizontal perspective, our relationships with each other. Paul's pursuing love. And it is producing in, in him a positive attitude. He wants us to pursue that same attitude. Why does he have it? Because he has absolute confidence in God's love and promises. And see, folks, when you are supported by and buttressed by the promises of God, it's going to put a smile on your face. It's going to defeat the blues that tend to be part of our experience in this life. I personally know what it is to go through that. Okay, you know what it's like to go through that. Circumstances that badger and badger and badger. And then we sing a song like we sung this morning. It is well with my soul. Why? Oh, because everybody loves me so much and so faithfully and so consistently. Because my wife always thinks I'm the best husband in the world. Because my kids are always what they should know. No, 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 no. It would seem weird if we started singing a song like that. It's well with my soul. I have eternal hope because of my wife. It would make sense for me to some degree. But it would be odd. But folks, we just sung that about God this morning. That the knowledge of the love of Christ produces in us a persistent, always hopes, always trust. Always hopes, always trust. These are in the present tense if you look at them in the original language. And there's an adverb always, and then whatever the aspect is, it's always trusting God. It's always hoping that God's going to bring about the best with absolute confidence. Okay, it is buoyed by the love of God that has been revealed for us in Jesus Christ. It's an absolute confidence in his love and promises that causes us to always believe and to always hope. It's not a passive resignation. It is not a shallow commitment. It is an active triumphant fortitude the characters that should characterize the life of those who have been redeemed. An active, triumphant fortitude. 
that should characterize the life of those who have been redeemed. It is upheld by its absolute confidence in the future that allows it to live in every kind of circumstance in the present and continually pours itself out on the behalf of others. It's the way Gordon Fee captures this text. It is so supported and strengthened by the love of God that it alters its relationship with others. So, because it has absolute confidence in God, it's positive. And because of that confidence in God, this kind of love is, if I use the word tenaciously as an adverb here, it is tenaciously optimistic in its relationship with others. It clings to hope. Not that they can change someone else, but that God, by his grace, can alter and change someone who is extremely difficult in their life and personal experience. And the result is optimism not based in an individual's capacity. It's an optimism that is based in what we have sung about this morning. God's love, God's grace, God's ability, the cross of Christ. It is void. It becomes optimistic and positive. It is tenacious and optimistic in its love for others how does it display that notice what verse 7 says the first characteristic and the last it always protects and it always perseveres isn't that powerful it always protects puts a cover over of protection a roof and it always perseveres it always hangs in there it always wants ultimately the best to be revealed in the life of someone who has wounded them Love will make you positive. It will fill you with hope. It'll change how you relate to others. In the book, Love Dare, the writer writes a chapter on this statement. Love always protects and always perseveres. In it, he acknowledges that we all know what we all know, and that is that no one is perfect. And that in, in every relationship, we're talking about the context of marriage, but I think this is true in every relationship. We have two rooms the writer postulates we have a depreciation room and we have an appreciation room in the depreciation room we have written on the walls the irritating characteristics of those in our relationships and in the appreciation room we write the positive characteristics of those around us and we've already seen what love thinks about okay when, when we focus on the depreciation room, what does it do? You know what it does? It kills hope. It kills hope. And when you focus on the appreciation room, always hopes, always perseveres, always protects, what happens? It's easier to love your mate. It's easier to love your children. It's easier to love the difficult person in your life. Because when you love with Christ-like love, what it's going to produce in your life, it's going to produce in your life a positive, God-honoring, hope-filled attitude. It's not a blind optimism. It is a loving optimism. It gives the benefit of the doubt while knowing that sinful people will sin. But when they do, it protects with the love of Christ. It moves into their life with a loving yet firm confrontation that seeks to restore, that hopes that things can be worked out. It doesn't move in with a negative or move away permanently. 
It stays near in hopes that things can improve for the glory of God because it is filled with absolute confidence in the love of God. Okay, the reason believers, Christians, should be positive in their relationship with others is because we have confidence in the love that God has for us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. Why? Because we know what love is. And when you pursue that kind of love, it will make you positive in your relationship with others. It will kill the negativity that often destroys relationships and organizations. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul is thinking about his own relationship with the Lord. And, and here's what he says talking about his struggles with the church in Corinth and all the difficulties that he's going through. In verse 14, he says this. He says, the love of Christ, that is the love of Christ towards him, constrains him, compels him, or binds him to the task of Christian service until the day that Jesus Christ comes. You know why Paul was positive? Why Paul was confident? Because he knew the love of God. And as he looked at the love of God, he would say this. He would say, the love that God has displayed towards me through Jesus Christ binds me to the task of being an apostle in a context that is difficult. It made Paul positive in the most incredibly difficult and trying circumstances. This morning, ask yourself the question, am I positive? Do I operate in the realm of grace? Do I realize that failure in relationships is not final? Am I like Jesus was in his relationship to Peter who failed on a regular basis and was regularly restored by the Savior whose positive love ended up transforming Peter into a prominent preacher of the gospel of Christ? You know why Peter survived? Because Jesus Christ was positive in his relationship with Peter. When Peter overstepped the boundary on a regular basis, when Peter denied Christ and just completely said that he didn't know him, what did Jesus do? He saw in Peter what no one else would have seen. He saw what Peter could be under the power of the Spirit of God. He saw what Peter could be when he was forgiven by the blood that he would shed on the cross. And he persisted in pursuing him with a positive and optimistic tenaciousness that allowed Peter to become everything that God knew that he could be. Folks, because that's what love will do are you quick to forgive when failure is present do you stay positive or do you allow the failure of others to color your perspective and worldview so much that you become negative towards them i think of stephen the first martyr in the early church acts chapter 7 and verse 60 he's being stoned because he's walked in obedience to god and as he gives up his final breaths, he looks up to heaven. And what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them. Is that negative or positive? What an incredible, tenaciously optimistic individual Stephen was. You know why? Because in the midst of his suffering, he looked up and he saw Jesus and you know what he was reminded of? I have hope. 
I have eternity with God in heaven. And like Paul, he says, the love of Christ is binding me to the task of, of obeying Jesus through to the end, even if it costs me my life. And so strong was that love of Christ for him that it transformed Peter into a forgiving, dying man. Because that's an astonishing thing. He's not rebuking them. And, and this, by the way, if you study through a book like the Fox's Book of Martyrs, the thing that caught the attention of the Roman world, of the pagan Roman world, was the way the Christians suffered. It caught their attention. When they were put to death for proclaiming the name of Christ, the world that watched their death was stunned by their love. And Stephen's the one, in a sense, that set the pace for that. Father, do not hold this sin to their charge. What is that? That is the positive, tenacious, optimistic view of love. God, perhaps, by the way I die, you will save some. And all you have to do is go forward two chapters and realize that the love that Stephen spoke at his martyrdom as Paul, the one who was Saul, who became the apostle, he, he, the end of Acts 7 says, Saul was standing there watching over the coats of those who under his direction were killing Stephen. And Stephen bore it in love with a positive outlook because he knew that the stones could not steal his hope. They could only, think about this, they can only take him to it. So in their sin of putting him to death, Stephen got a greater and clearer view of his hope. And it transformed him and caused him to utter words that in some way affected Paul so deeply that when Christ confronts him, Peter or Paul's response to Christ is, what do you want me to do? I've seen your love. Where did he see it? He saw it in the death of Stephen. He saw it in the resurrected and risen, glorified Lord who had died for his sin. And it produced in Paul then a, a, a powerful, positive, optimistic pursuit of lost souls. Folks, if you pursue love, it will purify your heart. It will affect your life. It will make you positive and fill you with hope in your relationships. And lastly, love will do this. It will impact your life both now and forever. I want to drift briefly into this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 8. Paul says, love never fails. Drop down to the end of verse 13. The greatest of these is love. So the greatest attribute that a Christian can pursue, the greatest Practice that a Christian can have in their life is the selfless giving up of their lives for the benefit of others. That kind of love, he says, will never fail. And that kind of love is the greatest gift that we can give to the world around us. Now, begin reading on in verse 8. Because the broader context that we've discussed from chapter 12 and chapter 14 is the context of spiritual gifts, which we have defined as God-given capacities that are to be used for the benefit and service of others. Okay, God-given capacities that help us to build others up. That's what spiritual gifts, capacities, talents, whatever you want to call them, things born by the Spirit into your life, that's what they are for. They are for the benefit and blessing of others. And they have a God-given intended value when they are used in love. Now notice what Paul says. He says, where there are prophecies, they will cease. 
Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And what, what you notice is this. There's a contrast. There is something present and there is something passing away. Okay? So there is an effectiveness for a God-appointed period of time and then there is a passing away. Okay, now here's my basic conviction from this text. Okay? I believe that the things that are mentioned have validity at times in the church age. Okay? But in comparison to love, they are temporary. Okay, love is the eternal virtue that Paul is talking about here. And spiritual gifts are temporary. So let me just give you these observations. Love impacts our life now and forever. Spiritual gifts are temporary, yet are an important part of our present existence. Okay, they are given by God. They're listed in chapter 12. They're listed in chapter 14. Some of them are listed here. Okay, they are temporary in their value, Yet, they are an important part of God's design for how the church functions today. They have God-intended value, and that value is present when they are used in love. If you go back to chapter 12 or think back to chapter 12, we find that spiritual gifts can be used in a way that are self-promoting. That devalues them. Okay, When spiritual gifts are used in a way that encourages brothers and sisters in Christ, they have a God-given purpose that builds others up and become an expression of love towards the body of Christ. However, they are temporary while they are important. Why are they temporary? Okay, that's the question we need to ask. Why is it that spiritual gifts are temporary? And the answer to that question is very simple. They have limited value. Okay? They have limited value. All right? They... Have a God-given purpose, but the purpose is limited. In what way is it limited? Okay, and here, here I think is the key. It is limited in relationship to time. Okay, they are for the church age. They are not for heaven. Okay, and Paul's argument is this. Spiritual gifts are given for the church age to encourage and to build up the body of Christ so that it can grow and become everything God wants it to be. Love is present in the church age And love is the atmosphere of eternity. Okay? Love is to be the atmosphere in which the church lives. Why? Love never fails. And the greatest of every gift that God has ever given man, the greatest gift that he has given is his love. So what is Paul doing? Paul's setting up a contrast here. In verses 9 through 10, notice what he says. He says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. That is, words of revelation, words of help, words of knowledge that God gives, they help, but they are partial. Okay, so when you look at verse 10, here's what he says. He says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. That partial word will no longer be needed because we will have a full and clear understanding of God's grace and glory when we stand in his presence. Gifts give partial knowledge, but we always, as we enjoy the benefit of God's word and revelation, we always need to remember that it is anticipating a perfection, a perfect revelation. I believe in verse 10 that the perfection speaks of the eternal destiny of every believer with God, free from sin, free from heartache, and free from sorrow. Okay, so the perfection is... When God comes and calls us to be with him, we enjoy a perfect place forever. Praise God. And what he is saying is this. The gifts that God gives to the church are wonderful and beneficial, but remember, more is coming. 
Okay, that becomes the emphasis or flow. Verse 11, another contrast. Paul says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. What is that? It's this basic flow. Okay, there is one season in life when you're a child, when you have binkies and diaper bags and baby bottles and cooing and all that kind of stuff. And then there's a time in the future when those things are no longer necessary. If you go back to verses 9 and 10, you find that the time for the, what, what Paul talks about, a season in life for this church age, when things are not complete. The permanent, the adulthood that he's talking about, I believe is the same kind of contrast. It points forward to heaven. So Paul wants us to enjoy the phases of life that we go through, but realize that love is the permanent value. So as we live in the church, what is the thing that the church should be most consumed with? Spiritual gifts or love? What should the church be most passionate about? Love. And here's the balance, okay? That love will always positively affect the use of spiritual gifts. But see, the problem in Corinth was people were using spiritual gifts, particularly verbal spiritual gifts as a means of self-promotion. And the result was that Paul, Paul makes this kind of a rhetorical statement back in chapter 12. Can the eye say to the body, I have no need of you? Can the hand say to the body, you know what, I really don't need you. I'm quite sufficient on my own. The answer is implied and clear, uh, no. So if anyone takes their gifts and uses them for self-promotion, it's not loving what we are to be pursuing is that which has permanent value and positive effect. And what has permanent value and positive effect is the exercise of every gift in a sensitive, God-honoring way that builds others up in the body of Christ. And then Paul moves on to, I think, what is probably the, the heart of this passage, verse 12. He says, Now we see but a, pure, a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. And then he qualifies it. He says, now I know in part. Then I will know fully as I am also known. Okay? Love affects us now and forever. Okay, what is Paul saying here? Now we see through a glass dimly or in a mirror dimly. Now, one thing you have to remember is this. The mirrors that we use today were created in the 12th century. Okay, the, 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 clair, the clarity type of mirror that we use today was created then. In Corinth, they were using polished metal, and Corinth had a reputation for making excellent mirrors, but the image in polished metal, not chrome, okay, but polished metal, was always a bit hazy. Okay, now what is Paul saying? Paul's saying that when God reveals truth in human words, it's a blessing. And we should covet those manifestations from God, those revelations from God. As we read his word and as God directs brothers and sisters to share with each other, we should covet those things. But what is Paul saying? They are all dim reflections. Why? Because human words cannot capture the reality of heaven. Human words cannot adequately talk about Christ. That's why when we talk about the love of Christ, we use words like indescribable, unfathomable. That's how Paul ends Romans chapter 11, isn't it? How unsearchable are his ways. They are past finding out. 
Now we see through a glass, it's dimly. Then we will see face to face. A year ago, had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon. Took too many pictures. Because I thought that when I get home, I can put those on a screen on the wall and give people the experience. Guess what? Have, have you ever done that? You take these awesome pictures. And you think, when I get home, I'm going to show these people. And they're going to have the same feeling that I had when I stood in that Caribbean island looking at blue water and coral. They're going to have the same feeling. I'm going to watch them light it with a smile. And you show them the picture and they're like, that's nice. And in your mind, what are you, here's what you're saying. You have to go with me to appreciate this. What did Paul understand? Go into 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I know a man who was caught up into the heavenlies, who saw things that are too hard to put in words. Paul knew what it was to live a frustrated life. You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to allow the Corinthians to understand the fully unveiled, manifest glory of God in a way that would change them like it had changed him. But he had a frustration. Words were inadequate. And Paul, that, folks, that's why when you look at the at spiritual gifts, people tend to overvalue some of them, especially revelatory gifts. Why? Because they think they are it, that they are the supreme form of revelation. They are not. They have a function, a God-given purpose. We don't need to destroy their function in the church, nor do we need to elevate them to a place that causes us to think that the person who has that experience is better off with God than I am. Folks, there is nothing that should produce in our lives joy like the cross of Christ because that is what is most clearly revealed in the word of God. The other helps that God gives us along the way are awesome and when they are timely, it will thrill your heart. But that direction, that revelation, that truth is but a dim reflection of the reality 